0: Welcome to Your Gal Friday, a podcast about female leaders, innovators, and rule breakers. Each week, your hosts will shine a spotlight on an amazing gal and talk about what we can all learn from her. Brought to you by Gal's Guide to the Galaxy. Welcome to Your Gal Friday, Season 3. I am Dr. Leah Leach. And I'm Phoebe Freer. Today we are talking about a gal who was born a slave, refused to give up her seat, found her voice as a journalist, led an anti-lynching campaign, and fought for justice for African Americans. Today we're talking about the amazing life and legacy of your gal, Ida B. Wells.
1: Yay! Um, it's really cool that we're starting off our new season with Ida B. Wells. So to start us off... Um, Ida B. Wells was born on July 16th of 1862 in Holly Springs, Mississippi. Ida had seven siblings, and their family seemed pretty tight-knit to me. Ida was actually born into slavery, believe it or not. The Emancipation Proclamation was not in effect until January 3rd of 1863, just six months after Ida was born. And so, therefore, Ida's first life was as a slave. So her parents were James Wells and Elizabeth or Lizzie Warrenton. So Ida's grandfather on her father's side was a white man who slept with a slave woman. So Ida's father therefore grew up still as a slave, but he learned learned as a tradesman as well. Meaning he got to um, learn something that was of value that he could be paid for in the future. Because his father actually valued his son despite him being a slave. Um, Ida's mother's upbringing was a bit more what you would be used to hearing, I suppose. As devastating as that sounds, being used to hearing about slavery is just. It gives me chills. Like, I cringe at the thought of that, but.
0: Right. You know what I oh, mean. I'm with you. Uh, mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. But um, what I mean by that, though, is that Lizzie was separated from her nine other siblings and worked at different places in different and worked for different white people. Ida's parents found each other due to James being a carpenter tradesman. They legally married after the the Emancipation Proclamation. This is where they're coming from, folks. Slavery wasn't that long ago, especially when you think about it broken down like this. That was, like, around 150 years ago. Which, right. I mean, it's only why? a couple of
0: generations back for all of us, yeah.
1: It really is. Yeah, exactly. So, according to... The, to the book To Keep the Waters Troubled by Linda O. McMurray, Ida began school and le- and learning at a young age. Both parents were eager for their children to go to school. Ida, Ida later recalled, Our job was to go to school and learn all we could. She learned to read from her father's newspapers, and her mother attended school with Ida and her siblings until she was well-read enough to read through the Bible. Education is another huge step to freedom, and Ida, and Ida's parents knew this very well. Her parents were also into politics and activism in their own different ways. It seems that this strong-willedness of Ida was born with her, and it just completely grew from there. It was in her DNA. So in September of 1878, when Ida was 16, she visited her grandmother near Holly Springs. This just so happened to be at the same time that the yellow fever epidemic struck the south and hit Ida's family hard. She got word that both of her parents had passed in the outbreak and that her siblings were placed in care until Ida got there. Upon hearing the news, she immediately fainted and then was in a deep depression. She wanted to return to her family and her siblings, but they wouldn't let her until they knew the outbreak had passed. So Ida was left with this worry for her siblings. Now, when she did return, some of her siblings were also struck by the fever. And to think just like that, we could have lost an incredible world changer. They wanted to displace all the remaining siblings, but Ida would not allow it. At the age of 16, she took a teacher's exam and she passed and became a teacher to help support her family and to help them stay together. Now, she actually made herself look older than 16 and then took the exam and completely passed. It, uh, I'm right. just blown away. I, <laughs> I can never girls be that Girls
0: gotta smart. do what a girl's gotta do, Right? <laughs> right. <laughs> keep that family together
1: absolutely so she had a family friend take care of the children while she worked through the week and then she when she came back home on weekends she tended to her household so she just was very strong-willed just like her parents and i think it's i really love um, researching where people grew up from because you really see the foreshadowing coming
0: in through their roots Yeah, you see, like the foundation of what's kind of building them as a person. Yeah, absolutely. Well, in 1883, Ida moved to Memphis and worked 10 miles away as a school teacher in the town of Woodstock, Tennessee. On one train ride from Memphis to Woodstock, Tennessee, Ida was traveling on the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad on a small passenger car train. She had the option of the front car or the rear car. In her testimony, she saw a drunk white man seated in the front car, so she sat in the rear car. More rowdy, drunk white men took their seats in the front car. When the conductor approached to check the tickets, with the train already in motion, he told Ida to move to the front car simply because she was black. Ida refused, and the conductor left and let her be on her way. But then the first stop happened, and the conductor returned again and asked her to move to the front car. Again, she refused. This is actually her testimony before the Supreme Court of what happened next. Quote, he then took hold of me to carry me to the other car. I resisted him, holding on to my seat when he called for help, and two white passengers helped him carry me out. I resisted all the time and never consented to go. My dress was torn in the struggle. One sleeve was almost torn off. Everyone in the car seemed to sympathize with the conductor and were against me, End quote. And that is 72 years before Rosa Parks that ida refused to give up her seat i think it's quite interesting (laughs) oh wow
1: yeah it's like major foreshadowing through history
0: right and she's a pioneer in this as well because um she sued the railroad company so yes (laughs) that is some guts yes so the circuit court decided in her favor And the railroad company was instructed to pay her damages, which were $500 worth. However, the railroad was not done with their fight, and they appealed to the Tennessee Supreme Court. And that court decided in favor of the railroad company. It reversed the earlier decision, and it forced Ida to pay the court fees as well. So that meant that not only did she have to give back the $500 she was awarded, but she had to pay an additional $200 in court fees. Now, this event propelled her towards journalism. She was first the subject of many newspapers that they wanted to cover of a 20-year-old black school teacher who stood up to a big railroad company. But later, this journalism turned her into an investigative reporter. And, Phoebe, you have more on that. Yes, absolutely.
1: So, according to the book Ida B. Wells, Social Activist and Reformer by Christina Durocker, Reverend Taylor... Nightingale of Beale Street Baptist Church started a newspaper called The Free Speech. Now Ida knew of this paper, but refused to write for him, saying that when he ran for a school board, he quote, boasted so and conducted himself generally in such an obnoxious manner that I completely disgusted me with him. Which, to be honest, I've been there with people. both right, for arrogance is yeah, it's definitely a turnoff. <laughs> um <laughs> But a change of events did occur. So, in 1888, a group of white males claimed that they wanted liberation from the Negro rule and escorted around 100 African Americans out of Marion, Alabama. Among them was J.L. Fleming, who had the newspaper, The Marion Headlight. Now, the Reverend offered to join forces with Fleming and created the Free Speech and Headlights. Now, this is a totally new paper. Now, with the new collaboration came a broader audience in the African American community. The paper advocated for African-American rights and encouraged resistance and equality. The two men approached Ida to write for them. Now, with a new fire lit inside of her to fight against the lynching, she agreed, but only if she was equal partners in the paper. She did not want to be a minor partner. And so she bought out one third of the paper and the three of them powered onward together as co-owners.
0: I love that. That's forward thinking.
1: Oh yeah. Now this is where Ida penned the name Lola. She used the paper to speak up about issues that concerned her in her community and wasn't afraid to call people out on it, including preachers and people of authority in her black community. This wasn't, she was a free for all. She wasn't pro, she wasn't, um, just, oh, all blacks are great. And all whites are horrible. She wasn't all women are great and all men are horrible. She wasn't like that. She wasn't she was one-sided. Yeah. She, she just wanted the truth. She just wanted the best for the young people in her community. And she wasn't afraid to call people out on it. Um And she was known for not only pointing out issues like corrupt preachers, but sending a call to action to people. She earned the name the Princess of the Press and commanded attention even though her opinions were controversial in ways not always liked. She highlighted on making the black schools better, as well as she found education of the mind and spirit important. But because she was still a teacher, writing about the schools burned her and she was let go from her teaching position. So, at this point, she went full-time into the newspaper.
0: It's kind of like when one door closes, another one opens kind of situation.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. yeah. Also,
0: it could have been fate a little bit, too. I mean, you could tell she she had a gift uh, for writing and, you know, rebel rousing and telling it like it is. So, yeah.
1: Absolutely. And when she went after the schools, um, she did not put her name on it. And she, like...
0: They still found out it was her... Yeah. yeah, they they were they were
1: still like, um, girl, this is pretty obvious. It was it's you. Pretty you, you know, you, ha- <laughs> yeah, you have insider information. These other guy, your other partners in your paper wouldn't know this. Like, you can deny it, you could not. You could say it's not you, but it's you. We all know it. Right.
0: So so close. And it was
1: like, <laughs> and and she was heartbroken about it that because she was just trying to protect the kids. She wasn't like vengeful. She wasn't being vengeful or like...
0: She was trying um, to get better for the kids. I mean, she the kids try- deserved more. She was more. trying, yeah.
1: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. She just wanted the kids to to grow and be, be raised better. And she was saddened that she got reprimanded for wanting better. But
0: right. it is what it, it is.
1: And yeah, another door completely opened. Mm-hmm. Now, in 1892, she was friends with three black men who owned the People's Grocery. The store was doing well and drew in more customers, and more customers than the other white-owned grocery stores. Now, several local store owners attacked the grocery in retaliation because they were doing well, because mm-hmm. people are dumb and rude and just, uh,
0: Right. But Racism. Anyways, yeah. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. You know. <laughs> um, p- <laughs> Exactly. So, People's Grocery owner, Thomas Moss, had been lynched alongside of two of his workers, Calvin McDowell and Will Stewart. They were lynched by a white mob that accused Thomas of plotting a war against whites. Now, one source says that they went to jail first, then a white mob invaded the jail, dragged the three men outside of town, and killed all of them. Now, the local paper, the Memphis Appeal Avalanche, described the lynching as a skillful execution. Mm -hmm. this fueled the fire for ida to join the paper and to keep writing she made it her mission to expose lynching as not keeping law and order but as white as whites claimed but as keeping blacks subordinates which i found that quote to be on point and i just like i can't i can't even word it any better than that very
0: yeah it was very powerful absolutely
1: So she made a habit of visiting lynching sites to collect information and interview witnesses, constructing versions of events far more accurate than these portrayed in white-owned newspapers. So the white community was not happy with this, as you can imagine, and they retaliated in kind by, of course, destroying the newspaper office that Ida worked at. And of course, because they did that, we don't... There is no copies of this newspaper. We cannot read any of it. And it's just a a shame.
0: Heartbreaking, Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, But Ida did not give up. She continued her anti-lynching crusade, first as a staff writer for the New York Age, and then as a lecturer and organizer of anti-lynching societies. According to the Tennessee Encyclopedia, no copy of the free speech survives. As with the other twenty-five black-owned newspapers of the area, no library or archive has preserved copies. Um, it is saddening. Sad. Like yeah. humans are awful. <laughs> hmm Exactly. Ugh. That part of this was actually really hard for me to research because yeah. I like. I apologize if there's not enough about the lynching in this from my side because it was very difficult for it's me to breed very
0: it. tough oh yeah it <clears throat> it's something that a person um with possibly a thicker stomach <laughs> yeah uh, exactly research on their I was own. Like... They, the details are out there they absolutely they are and yes, they are, are. heartbreaking they they're heartbreaking and you can um get a sense why um Ida was like um I need to do something Yeah, absolutely. I do not blame her one bit. Yes. Well, what happened next is actually often kind of glossed over a little bit when it comes to mention of her life. And I actually kind of wonder if if it's for one very simple reason. And for once, it's not racism. Um, It actually, it involves women helping other women. And a lot of times, that's the part of someone's life that gets glossed over. So in 1892, Ida was at the National Press Association Convention in Philadelphia, where she met an English woman named Catherine Impey. Now, Catherine was a Quaker from a well-to-do family who dedicated her life to many movements, and most notably, the elimination of global racial prejudice, persecution, and violence. Now, Ida had already published Southern Horrors, a book detailing her investigations of lynching. Catherine knew of her research and wanted to spread the word to more people. Catherine convinced a successful novelist, Isabella Phoebe Mayo, to pay for a speaking tour for Ida. So on April 5th of 1893, Ida set sail for Britain for the first time. Now, even though lynching was a American problem, the idea behind capturing the hearts, minds, and headlines of the British people would put pressure on the American press and political leaders to listen to established anti-lynching laws. That was the idea. Now, because of Ida's successful speaking engagements, the Society of the Furtherance of the Brotherhood of Man was founded, and there was branches set up throughout Britain. Over 2,000 people enrolled in its very first year. Ida also spoke at the Women's Christian Temperance Union, headed by Lady Henry Somerset. She was invited to speak about temperance, which is anti-drinking. But uh, Ida spoke about anti-lynching instead, because a sister's got to do what a sister's got to do. <laughs> oh, yeah. That,
1: that makes now, me so proud.
0: <laughs> right. Now she did meet resistance in Britain. Uh, There were those such as the Birmingham City councillor who thought that the English should stay out of American affairs. Ida would also return to Britain a second time thanks to Celestine Edwards, a newspaper editor and member of the Society of Furtherance of Brotherhood of Man. Uh, Before her 1894 journey, she worked out a deal with William Penn Nixon at the Chicago newspaper to send back reports of her time in England for publication. The Chicago Daily Interocean was one of the very rare papers that consistently denounced lynching. This deal made Ida the first black woman to be paid as a correspondent for a mainstream white American newspaper. Pretty cool, huh? <laughs> That's awesome. So when her supporter Celestine got sick, she wasn't able to set her up with speaking engagements throughout Britain. So Ida asked Frederick Douglass for a letter of recommendation, and he delivered. Ida gave hundreds of lectures and interviews, and the British press was widely positive and supportive. Word of her accomplishments would be sent back to the States, including that of founding an English anti-lynching committee... In London, the committee contained dukes, archbishops, and almost 20 members of parliament. Now, Ida's speaking tour did cause debate in both Britain and America. The New York Times even tried to discredit her success, calling her, quote, a slanderous, nasty, nasty-minded mulattress." That's Seriously? mean. My Seriously? goodness, New York Times, way back. We're talking way back, but still, that's not nice. <laughs> that's not nice at all. <laughs> right. Uh, but the thousands who saw her talk in person and the many more who read her accounts in the newspapers were becoming more and more convinced by the reality of the issue. So Ida followed up her second trip to Britain with a second book, A Red Record, and it countered the rape myth that was used by many lynch mobs to justify the murder of African Americans. She pulled no punches. She went there and oh, she addressed Oh my gosh. Her. Yes. That's-
1: more power to her and we'll definitely be talking about those um accusations oh yes later on oh my gosh it's just insane to think about that this is real like this isn't we're not making up stories this is right you know what our great great grandparents dealt with you know what i mean like
0: (laughs) exactly oh yes
1: So after Ida's tour in Great Britain, she came to what we will call home to Chicago. Now, while she was in Chicago, she worked at the Chicago World's Columbian Exposition in 1893, which is super cool to me because um, I made a documentary entitled Black Guides of Mammoth Cave a few years back. There's a man in this documentary that we talk about who also intended the same exact... Um, Columbian exposition now in the same year everything his name is william bransford and he was an african-american now as the documentary says quote the negro attendant who has guided so many thousands of visitors through the cave will be here to explain as only he can explain the beauties of the exhibit so basically he was presenting this model of all the cave systems yeah so in reference to the documentary it was really important um but also this exposition and world's fair was important because if i recall correctly i'm pretty sure one of our other gals that we covered went to the same world's fair and frederick douglas went and it's just like it all keeps coming back to this fair which seems it was a big deal Yeah, it it went on for,
0: I think it went on for six months and it's not a one day thing. Cause like some of the world's fairs were a year long process and then some of them were like six months. They started like uh, varying. I can't remember this particular one, how long it was, but also it was in Chicago where like before they were in London, I think the one before that was in Paris. And so, you know, being the the home country, you know, any of the American uh, gals that we cover that are around this time period. Yeah. They probably went there, but whether or not they spoke there or whether or not they did what uh, Ida did, you know, that's different. Right?
1: (laughs) Absolutely. This is, this is pretty much a big deal. Um, Oh yes. But also it, it was also a big deal for Ida because she worked on this pamphlet about the fair with a man by the name of Ferdinand Barnett. Now he wrote sections of the pamphlet entitled the reason why the colored America is not in the world's Columbian exposition. Which is fascinating to me because William Bransford, from my documentary, was a black man and he was presenting in the exposition. However, right. however, the big deal in the documentary was that he was an African American, but he was sent to the World's Fair because it was able to, quote, pass for white. Yeah. He was, um, he even rode on the train car in the white section until he went back home And people were recognizing him, and then he moved back to the colored car, as they say. Mm. Now, this is a story we shared in my documentary because this story went down through his family line as a family, as a famous family historical story. Like it's one of those um, stories, like urban legends,
0: family stories. Exactly,
1: exactly. And like you can't, you can't like Google this story. Like this is this is something that like. A living relative told us about so Mm. it was just like oh my goodness but i i knew the context of why it was important to the documentary because Mm -hmm. of how they treat blacks versus whites versus the cave i had no idea that this was so important that he could pass for white because of the actual world's fair like that's why this was important. Like it, it did not made click. going out in
0: public a, a little different, mm-hmm. uh, a little easier. Not easy, yeah, but right, little.
1: not mm. easy, but a little easier. Like he was still a black tour guide who knew everything, but mm. he could ba- pass for white, and so he was slightly more accepted into society. So it's just like wow, I did not; those things did not click until I researched for this story
0: right and that wasn't who Ferdinand was talking about
1: (laughs) um no not even a little bit no it was Mm -hmm. like the opposite Ferdinand was talking about the fact that he has to try to pass for white to even get into the world's fair that's what he was talking about like that's the that's the thing that's really upsetting but Ferdinand Lee Barnett had similar aspirations to Ida to help gain more freedoms two black Americans. He also owned a newspaper. So it seems to me that they were actually destined to meet. And it's very Mm -hmm. cool watching two people find each other through the same passion. And they met and they married and Ida started working for his newspaper, which was called the Chicago conservator, which was the first black newspaper in Chicago. And this was in 1878 indeed. So in time, Ida also became partial owner and then editor of the paper.
0: <laughs> well, I've got to cover uh women's rights and suffrage ties and when it comes to Ida's involvement I have to step back just a little bit and kind of like set the tone and remind us all of kind of like where we are in history because the women's movement yeah. is quite interesting slash complicated whichever whichever <laughs> definition right. yeah. a person likes. Um, I so would f- choose to
1: go with both. <laughs> right. It,
0: why can't it be both, right? So it's both. Yeah, exactly. Let's <laughs> go
1: with both. <those. laughs>
0: so before Ida was born, uh, started the temperance movement and later that turned into prohibition is kind of how We kind of know it today. Temperance was about the elimination of alcohol, and many early suffragettes, like Susan B. Anthony, who we talked about in episode nine in the Waybacks, she started hearing about the temperance movement in church and she joined the fight because she saw it as a women's rights issue. So at that time, if a woman was married to a drunkard, she had no right to guardianship of her children, she could not own her own property, she could not leave, and divorces were extremely difficult. So all of this, on top of financial strain and the very strong possibility of abuse and neglect due to the overabundance of alcohol, was very much a strain on relationships. That's why it became a women's rights issue. So Susan B. Anthony and her best friend Elizabeth Cady Stanton started to make more legal strides in women's rights rather than the elimination elimination of alcohol. In 1860, New York State passed the Married Women's Property Bill, and that's what it took for Susan and Elizabeth to to change their focus to suffrage, the women's right to vote. So within suffrage, there was a divide on how best to actually accomplish this. There would be either a constitutional amendment that would blanket uh, votes for women for all or it would be up to individual state laws granting women the right to vote. And I will actually come back to this as well. So in 1870, with the passage of the 15th Amendment that granted black men the right to vote, this upset some white Southern suffragettes, including one Frances E. Willard. Frances would become the president of the Women's Christus Temperance Society, and she would also find herself... At odds with Ida B. Wells. Now, according to an article from The Root, which was entitled How Racism Tainted Women's Suffrage by Monet Fields White, quote, to Willard, giving women the right to vote was the only way to rid the U.S. of evils of intemperance. She couched this view on its organization's mission of home protection. It was a view that garnered her with much support within the WCTU and had two hundred and fifty hundred thousand members and chapters in just about every state. She was even willing to court white Southern women at the expense of Blacks, even though her parents had been abolitionists. She said, quote, Quote, better whiskey and more of it is the rallying cry of the great dark-faced mobs, Willard said in an 1890 interview with the New York Voice. Quote, the safety of the white women of childhood and home is menaced in thousands of localities. And that is the end quote from the Root article. Well, understandably so what willard said upset ida (laughs) she didn't Um, like saying the drunkenness of black folk was basically hurting white people yeah she was not standing for that at all so um especially when ida was in britain and Frances was said to be in britain and she was called the uncrowned queen of american democracy uh i didn't like that very much so both gals were in England and they were invited to speak at the same temperance event in 1894. Francis was the guest of Lady Somerset and they were seated side by side. Now Ida was asked what she thought of Francis. And Ida chose to read from the 1890 New York Voice interview, which I had just read from. Oh, and she wow. added to that, quote, the local tavern is the Negro center of power. The colored race multiplies like the locusts of Egypt. Now, end quote. Uh, Ida was then uh, asking the audience what they thought about powerful white women who threaten black lives. Girl called her out. Called her oh, out. Oh, Yeah.
1: Yeah, you really shouldn't ask yeah. Ida her real what, she, opinions on those. Right,
0: her real thoughts on, yeah, yeah. somebody who wrote mm-hmm. in a paper. Because Ida reads and she, you know, she challenges mm-hmm. and worships the word.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. So...
0: It did ruffle some feathers. Uh, Frances Willard and Lady Somerset uh, tried to get Frederick Douglass involved in all of this, but it blew oh, up. Oh, jeez. Uh, Frances's ignorance and her racism became more and more apparent the more she spoke. Ido would later write in her autobiography that the moment was, quote, uh, not only a boomerang to Miss Willard, it seemed to appeal to the British sense of fair play. Here are two prominent white women joining hands in effort to crush an insignificant colored woman who had neither money nor influence, nothing but the power of truth to which to fight her battles. End quote. <laughs> so wow. I'd have had fun with it later on. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Right. So when Ida returned to America, she reclaimed her presidency at the Women's Era Club in Chicago and various club chapters published the first monthly newspaper by African-American women. Uh, That started in 1894 by Josephine St. Pierre Ruffin and her daughter, Flora Ruggan Ridley. Ida was a writer for them. Uh, now, the power of the paper was very strong, so much so that in 1895, they called a conference in response to a white journalist's letter demoralizing African-American women. And that conference would lead to the National Federation of Afro-American Women. And that would later become the National Association for Colored Women. I know. They change. The clubs change. It's and so why so it's many so club much. names, right? Yes. Uh, and why was Ida and part? it just keeps going. And also, uh, the thing to understand about the time is why people were... In a lot of clubs, um, was the emerging middle class, Um, especially the middle class of African American women, um, because many middle class women belonged to clubs to show their social standing. Um, It was kind of like their badge of what club they belonged to. So, Ida also subscribed to the W.E.B. Du Bois, the Talented Tenth, leadership, and that was to use your education and resources to help those less fortunate and clubs were a way of showing that and doing that and putting that into action. So some clubs had specific functions such as building a local kindergarten for African-American children. So that would have its own club. Um, Getting Illinois women uh, the right to vote would be its own club. Getting African-American politicians elected, of course, was another. So Ida founded, uh, either founded these or was part of all of these activities and clubs. And she was one of the most prominent prominent African American suffragettes in Chicago so that's why she belonged to all of them (laughs) yeah that makes sense Exactly. Uh, what was not surprising uh, was that she was invited to the National Suffrage Parade in 1913. This was going to be a very big deal. This was a very big push for women's right to vote. Uh, the parade, everybody in the suffrage movement was talking about it. So thousands of women gathered in Washington, D.C. the day before the inauguration of President Woodrow Wilson. Uh, the cause was to call for that constitutional amendment guaranteeing women the right to vote, a battle that had been fought for up to 60 years at that point. So the parade was spearheaded by Alice Paul and the National American Women's Suffrage Association. Now, Inez Mulholland was atop her white horse, and she led the parade of 5,000 suffragettes. There was 20 uh, parade floats, nine bands, and four mounted brigades. It was a serious parade, (laughs) y'all. Wow. But when Ida arrived... She was told she could not join her integrated Chicago delegation, but she had to go to the back of the parade. She did not. Uh, Ida stood with the spectators, and when her delegation from Chicago arrived in front of her, she simply entered the parade route with them and completed the parade with them.
1: (laughs) That's all right, Ida.
0: There you go, exactly. That is her women's rights suffragette involvement. (laughs) But you have a little bit more on some of the clubs that she started, founded, and participated in.
1: Yes, absolutely. So the National Afro-American Council was a nationwide civil rights organization in the United States. It was created in September of 1898 by newspaper editor Timothy Thomas Fortune and Bishop Alexander Walters in Rochester, New York specifically created to challenge racial segregation and discrimination. Now, the council brought together a wide range of African Americans, including journalists, lawyers, educators, politicians, and community activists. Now, Timothy Thomas Fortune had tried multiple times to form an organization to support and protect African Americans. Now, these attempts included the National Afro-American League and the National Afro-American Press Association. Now, thankfully, the National Afro-American Council which is different than the League. It started after the League. The National Afro-American Council lasted much longer in comparison, but still was only around about a decade. Now, Timothy got a handful of prominent black people to back him up, including Booker T. Washington and, of course, Ida B. Wells. Now, Ida was elected as secretary to this movement, and she was also a part of the other ones, just they lasted only like one or two years.
0: Right, and it could have been a situation where they were founded for one specific purpose, and once that purpose was accomplished, they moved on to another Mm -hmm. purpose. Yeah.
1: That makes sense, yeah. Now, the council was formed because of the violent lynchings of African Americans in the South. So a man named by the name of Bishop Walters said quote it becomes absolutely necessary that we organize to protect ourselves and I and Ida obviously believed this as well everything that this council stood for was what she had already been fighting so it was just pretty much a natural course of action for her to join them
0: right they were speaking her language already yeah she's like mm-hmm. i got this yeah
1: Yeah, exactly. So the council was designed as an umbrella group across the United States. It's surprising to me, at least, to see how widespread it was. Maybe I'm just not really that familiar with groups like this, but it was so large that they had annual meetings, but never in the same place. They were widespread in different major cities in the United States, including Chicago. Now, officers were elected annually, and and the meetings consisted of a president, nine vice presidents, several secretaries, a treasurer, and a national organizer, among other different positions. Now, in addition, a large national executive committee was composed of three members of the U.S. state or territory. I mean, this thing was just massive.
0: It was very big. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it included one female member from each state, which is also really cool to see. So it kind yes, of like
0: inclusion overlaps Look at that. exactly.
1: It overlaps the suffragette movement. It so it overlaps the Black rights movement. I mean, it's just they Absolutely. try to include everybody.
0: Yeah, the world is kind of changing at this point. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: So by including this bigger spectrum of black leaders, including journalists, attorneys, educators, politicians, and community activists, the Afro- the Afro-American Council was more representative of the larger black middle class and a better position to generate funds to support its activities, and so therefore lasted much longer. So from 1898 to 1902, Ida served as the secretary of the National Afro-American Council. Awesome. Yeah, so the council had its run and it was a good stretch in comparison, but it did eventually fall due to the lack of funding. But it did break off into different movements, including the Niagara movement, which Ida was a part of by nineteen oh eight. Although the yeah, so yeah, the it Niagara started earlier. itself started in nineteen oh five, but she joined in nineteen oh eight. The movement was named after Niagara Falls, which was where the first meeting took place. I found it really cool, um that The Niagara Movement was named after Niagara Falls. It's such a great force of nature, literally, and that's what they want it to be. So it's it's pretty cool, in my opinion.
0: Right. It's very hard to stop a large body of water. (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
1: So the Niagara Movement was a call for opposition to racial segregation and disenfranchisement. There is very little out there on Ida's involvement in this specific movement. One book suggests that it was limited due to the pointedness of it being for men. But Ida certainly never stood by to watch the world burn. She stayed active in any way that she could, including partnering with people she didn't particularly always agree with. Right. So in 1908, the Springfield Race Riot occurred. It started when two... Black men were arrested in suspicion of raping two white women, which goes along with the rape myth that Leah was talking about earlier. Now, accusations like this were far too common amongst the black community. Um, it initiated this white mob of about 5,000 white men who went through towns murdering black people. They just assumed all blacks were bad, and this, mo- this mob formed originally to seek out and lynch these two men, but when they discovered that the sheriff had transferred them out of the city, the mob grew out of control and just destroyed even black businesses and homes too. It got so far out of hand that the state militia was called out to stop the rioting.
0: Right.
1: Uh, um, it's it's it got just bad. heartbreaking. It's mm-hmm. really bad. Um, the, the riot... Trials and aftermath are said to be one of the most well-documented examples of the complex intersection of race, class, and criminal justice in the United
0: States. Because it was so well-documented, um, more mm-hmm. people were aware of kind of like the inside path. So if they were, if they were middle right. class and they hadn't experienced this, whether they were white and black, white or black, whether they were city or whether they were um, more on the country, because it was written down. Um, and because it was documented and because people were talking about it, it spread awareness. hmm Yeah. So, oh Now, the 1908 riots, they also sparked white support, which would lead to the creation of the NAACP, the National Association of the Advancement of Color People. Now, personally, I didn't know that the NAACP was started by mostly white people. I will say that threw me for a loop. I was very surprised this week. <laughs> <laughs> learning about yeah, that. Yeah, that's pretty um yeah. right, exactly. Uh, but let me tell you uh how it started and of course Ida's involvement. Now, an article called A Race War in the North was written by William English Walling. He was a white man calling for equality among blacks and whites. This was sparked by learning about the 1908 riots. The article connected with other white leaders like Oswald Garrison Villard. He was the grandson of the abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison. He published the anti-slavery paper, The Liberator, starting in 1831 and published that paper just until the end of the Civil War. Now, the grandson's name carried clout because it had that garrison in it. And so he published in the New York Post on Lincoln's birthday, talk about marketing, an essay that requested, quote, believer in democracy to join in a national conference for the discussion of present evils, the voicing of protest, and the renewal of the struggle for civil and political liberty, end quote. So the conference would take place in New York, May 31st to June 1st, 1909. Ida gave a talk entitled lynching our national crime. And she spelled out three clear facts. Number one, lynching is a color line murder. Number two, crimes against women is the excuse. It is not the cause. And number three, it is a national crime and requires a national remedy. I love her clear, analytical, yet factual thinking. I just love it. Anyway. um, Yeah, absolutely. On the last day of the conference, a committee of 40 were chosen. Twelve of them were black. And Ida was not one of them. And she was mad. Mad. Very, 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 very mad. (laughs) In this anger, I'm sure there are many sides to the story because everyone's going to want to take credit for calming a black woman down. But here's what I read. I read that W.E.B. Du Bois changed his mind and was willing to put her name on the list, but she refused. I read another guy offered to resign so that she could have his spot. She refused. However, even Ida wasn't clear on what exactly happened, But in the end, Ida's name was added to the committee as a founding member of the NAACP. But times were changing. They were changing from protests to politics. They were changing from ruffling feathers to playing nice. And according to an article called Missing in Action, Ida B. Wells, the NAACP, and the historical record by Paula Giddings, she said, quote, blacks were expected to be grateful for the attention of reformers. And often there was an odor of cultural inferiority, if not a biological one. So that makes the founding of the NAACP a little awkward. Now, I know this is the beginnings of it. Um, so that's interesting. Ida could be grateful, and she could play nice. But what is evident is she stood up for Black women. Uh, she actually challenged Jane Adams, who we talked about in an earlier episode, of yeah, the assumptions of Black women in the press. Um Uh, Ida published a series of essays and articles, some saying something so simple, yet so profound, such as, quote, that Black women have the same love for husbands and children, the same ambitions for well-ordered families that white women have. I mean, that's something you need to clearly say. That's sad. But at the same time, you gotta say it the same. So Ida would also write about the isolation of Black women that they endure, And this isolation that Ida wrote about, perhaps she was reflecting in her NAACP invitations um, because Jane Adams was actually elected as the first president of the Chicago branch of the NAACP. Not Ida. Now, I'm reading behind the lines, and I will admit that when I do that, because honestly, I I really could be wrong here. Uh, But I'll just throw this out there. It feels like Ida and the NAACP in those days, they needed each other. But the relationship was not built on a solid foundation of trust on either side. So they kind of hesitated promoting each other and strengthening each other. So it's kind of (laughs) awkward. Yeah. Right. Yeah.
1: (laughs) It seems very awkward. And when I was yes. trying to research some of the NAACP too, um, just, I mean, you did the bulk of it, but even with my just kind of cur- cursory research, it was very right. confusing. Like, is she a part of it? Is she not? Did she start it? Did she not? It right. Was like, oh my gosh, like she
0: would help it and then she wouldn't. They would right. use her stuff and then they wouldn't. And. Uh, it, it did get complicated. I mean, Ida, she disagreed with the NAACP. They did have a leaning in the beginning towards white academics, and she was neither of those things. Um, But she would invite the NAACP leaders to functions at the Negro Fellowship League, which Phoebe's going to talk about in a minute. Um, The NAACP also had a huge presence in 1911. There was a number of horrific lynchings where they really leaned on Ida's research and her thought, But they downplayed the fact that they were taking a lot of these ideas from Ida. Uh, It wouldn't be long before Ida actually cut her ties with the growing NAACP. She explained later that she felt that they lacked action-based initiatives is why she said she distanced herself. Um, Also, when Mary White Ovington reflected on the NAACP years, uh, she wrote that the early part of the anti-lynching campaigns by the NAACP uh, were done by quote the best work was done by women but she didn't even mention Ida's name so it's interesting Mm -hmm. of how kind of the history story played out with Mm -hmm. Ida and the NAACP yeah it's just weird
1: it is very weird but uh Ida did not stop there she did not stop starting one movement or one organization she continued on with more things
0: right she was always moving
1: Yeah, absolutely. So another prominent thing she did was she started the Negro Fellowship League in 1910. This was at a time when American settlement houses and the Young Men Christian Associations were actually segregated still. Now, the Negro Fellowship League started out in her Bible study group. Ida built the organization into a reading room and a social center, which moved into a rented space in 1910. She received some money from the move from Mrs. Victor Lawson, who was the wife of the owner of the Chicago Daily News. Now that I found that from only one re- one source, so. Gotcha. I mean, it could it it could be a rumor. It could be true. Um, but I thought right. it was pretty cool. Sounds
0: plausible as much, so- exactly. Yeah, yeah,
1: it sounds plausible, but it could be just something somebody said. Um, right. Negro Fellowship League is super cool because it basically started as a as a Bible study, and it just like grew and grew and grew. Now, quote staffed by one employee and a roster of volunteers, the NFL's reading room was open from 9am to 9pm and housed a selected library of history, biography, fiction, race literature especially. It offered visitors a place to read, study, write letters, pursue a quiet game of checkers, dominoes, or other games that would not interfere with those who wished to read. No non-alcoholic refreshments were available. Visitors were also encouraged to attend weekly lectures by a variety of prominent speakers, ranging from white reformers such as Jane Adams and Mary White Ovington, to black intellectuals such as William Monroe Trotter, Garland Penn, and the historian Carter G. Woodson, free and open to the public. These events Events attracted local people as well as league members, end quote. Now, yeah. I wanted to include that whole quote because, oh my goodness, it sounds very much like um, Gals Guide, honestly. Um, right, and it's a little bit <laughs> like what like, we
0: learned that Jane Addams kind of started, uh, abs- too, yeah, with those yeah, houses. Yeah,
1: absolutely, and, with her houses, yeah.
0: Yeah, and then also Carter G. Woodson, um, he is known as the father that started Black History Month, basically, kind of the oh evolution of Black History Month. Right, it's yeah, there's so some cool powerful names things... in there.
1: Absolutely, it's just cool how things start small, and then it's kind of like we're growing and growing and growing.
0: Right, um, Exactly.
1: Now, this organization helped people speak freely, but not only that, but like the quote said, it turned into a library
0: of sorts. Yay! I love libraries. Mm. Oh, wait. Exactly. Oh, wait.
1: I would have never guessed.
0: God <laughs> is starting a library. Yay! Galscott is starting a library,
1: and this is our first time, at least on this show, that we get to say that.
0: Yes! So
1: the organization actually shared a space to provide people with shelter and even food. It began to offer Mm -hmm. lodging to young men who had just migrated to Chicago. Now, visitors could rent a bed for 50 cents a night. And in just its first year of operation, the Employment Bureau placed 150 men in jobs. Now, at one point, right... So, at one point, I had exposed the segregationist policies of the Young Men Christian Association. Now, after several. You gotta call it out, yeah. (laughs) You you gotta call it out. And, like, our girl (laughs) called it out. Like, of course she did. (laughs) (laughs) Now, after that, several wealthy donors withdrew their support from the YMCA and gave nearly $9,000 to the establishment of the Negro Fellowship Reading Room and Social Center.
0: Very nice. Put your money where your social <laughs> conscience is.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's beautiful. Yep. In fact, so the NFL, which is okay, the Super Bowl was recently. So it's I know, kind right? Of funny to say that. So, but so the Negro Fellowship <laughs> League did not last as exactly. long as as Ida would have liked. So it only lasted a few years. But when it but when it did survive, it provided many platforms for social change. Now, Ida and her husband, Ferdinand, used this platform to help provide legal services for black men and women. Now, Ida became a probation officer and took on many controversial cases. She took on cases related to lynching, segregation, or discrimination against black men in particular. She did not always win her cases, but she did fight hard for everyone and pooled her resources. She may have done a lot of things that were considered to be quote-unquote failures, but all of those things added up and paved the way for the future.
0: Oh yeah, uh, a lot of times the failures are like, you know what? No one has ever tried this before. Somebody has to lay the groundwork. You know, absolutely. Not every, yeah. not you know, if you take it as a baseball reference, and I don't play baseball, you know, you don't hit mm-hmm. every single one of them as a home run. You know, absolutely. <laughs> Some oh, of uh, them,
1: if yeah, as long as we're quoting sports, um, Michael Jordan said something close to like he's, um, missed more shots than he's then he's made then
0: he's made right exactly yeah that's, so it's like that's part of it you have it's to like try Michael
1: jordan basket i mean like but i mean that's the whole thing
0: right exactly and that's uh fighting for equality you're gonna fail absolutely. more than you're gonna succeed but when you succeed it's monumental to a large a large amount of people so yeah absolutely Ida would spend her later life in political matters that included an anti-lynching law that would not come to fruition in her lifetime, uh, but pushing to get African Americans elected to office, which did come to fruition in her lifetime. She also herself ran for state senator in 1930. Unfortunately, it was an unsuccessful run. Ida started writing her autobiography in 1927. She had health problems, though, in 1931. And after an illness, her kidneys shut down and she died March 25th, 1931. She was 68 years old and she had four children. Her book, Crusade for Justice, was published in 1970, 39 years after her death. I found that interesting and sad and yeah just kind of wow yeah but now comes to what legacy do you think she wanted to leave behind what do you think Ida was um was fighting for
1: well when I think back to Ida's roots and how she really fought for her siblings I really think that she wanted a safe world for her siblings i mean not all of them survived she really didn't have she didn't have many relatives left however right. the one she did she was highly protective of and she took on the legacy of her own parents her own yeah, parents absolutely. were political and fought for rights and and i really feel like she took it upon herself to to live on their own legacy and um almost uh, become like a
0: mama of the nation if you kind of think of it that way (laughs) absolutely
1: absolutely, yeah Yeah. and she was i i I couldn't put it any better than that like i really truly feel like that's what her legacy was she wanted a better world for young black children like that Mm. was what she wanted and so she did that in every way she possibly could and in those ways that meant the most to her which was reading and writing like her parents taught her so yeah. that's just my personal opinion of her legacy
0: yeah a lot of times when it does come to the the thing you spend your most most time on whether that is publicly or whether that is privately within your own family it's the thing mm-hmm. that you were missing as a child that you want to write that wrong yes and absolutely. so what you didn't get and what you need A lot of times that propels a person to be like, this needs to be out in the world because I didn't get it. And so the next person needs it. So yeah, it's absolutely a a kernel. Yeah. Uh, For me, for the legacy, an anti-lynching law. I think that's really Mm. what she wanted. And that's really what she was fighting so hard for was a law. Uh, Phoebe, do you have a guess of what year it was when an anti-lynching law would finally come into effect in this country, in America? Um,
1: I'm thinking. Let's see.
0: Because she started fighting for it in like the 1880s, 1890s, oh, is man. when she started. When do you think it actually passed?
1: And like you said, it didn't happen before she died. So like
0: 40s. 40s. Uh, the Justice yeah. for Lynching Act was unanimously passed by Congress December 19th, 2018 oh my gosh no i know no no Isn't no oh my that crazy that no yeah <laughs> oh my gosh from the time that of was... recording that no. is really like a month ago you know what that i was mean a month like... ago. that was a month ago really it was a month guys? ago, really good. Yeah. okay really yeah like yeah.
1: I swear I did not like read ahead. Actually, what I <laughs> what happened was I saw that date and I didn't read the context of that date, and I'm like, oh, she's probably being like some movie or something. I don't know what she's nope. gonna say. I was like, nope. No, that's the actual date. Like, please I was like, Don't be that date, don't. oh no. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> oh my it is. gosh. That's there awful. There has been
0: over two hundred different anti lynching bills brought to Congress and they have oh all my been God. voted down. Um. So I think she wanted that law to be her legacy. I think it's an insult that it took Um, this long. Absolutely, and it's very telling. I am.
1: I am insulted. Uh (laughs) I am very insulted. (laughs) I thought it also kind of
0: showed the 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 complexity and the contrast about talking about Iw Wells to talk about the thing that she worked so hard for took till December of twenty eighteen. It took like, really? Till
1: literally a month ago. Uh huh. Oh
0: yeah, my sad. gosh,
1: I'm so mad right now. <laughs>
0: uh-huh. I was pretty mad when I saw that.
1: <gasps> Oh my gosh!
0: <laughs> exactly.
1: So that's. Awful. that's I mean, right. I'm glad we finally did it, but what are we doing, America? But you like, know what? what are we doing? like too late, almost.
0: Like, come on, no, too it's not too late, late because at least we did it. But um, yeah, there's at no gold star it, on but... that one. Let me put it that way. You know what I mean? Good. Wow. It's a slow clap, is what that is. Is like mm-hmm, exactly. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a little patronizing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good. You Thanks. finally did something. My Thanks goodness gracious. Thanks for that. Uh, wow. But on the other hand, what did you learn from Ida B. Wells? What That's can you question. kind of like take with you of her essence on your journey to kind of like, you know, personalize her? What did she teach you?
1: She First off, she was incredibly strong and powerful for combating the, the lynching. Because that was yeah. hard just to read about. Like I I, I had to stop and like go research a different question for a minute. Like it was It's deep and not, dark. Yeah. It is. It is not easy. Um but I learned perseverance and I learned um to be outspoken. Like she yeah. was outspoken about basic human rights and but like she was able to to stand up to like um, Jane Adams, right? said like
0: yes, she didn't. She didn't back down like when didn't. Jane Adams was saying some questionable things about black women that she just Absolutely. like Jane Adams just didn't know. She didn't know, and so Ida's Absolutely. like, well, I'll tell you.
1: <laughs> so what Ida taught me was that it is okay to be complex on these issues, and it is okay to talk about them and to be direct about them. In fact, it is better to be direct about them.
0: You save some time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it would save a lot of time.
0: <laughs> you might oh, make yeah. some enemies here and there. Booker T. Washington oh, yeah. talking about no. you. But at the yeah, same exactly. time, at the same she's time. getting things done.
1: <laughs> right? Like, we're talking about her. Like, we're not talking mm-hmm. about her because she stayed quiet and made friends. Like, she didn't make right? friends. She wasn't, she wasn't out there to be buddy buddies with everybody she could. She didn't yeah. do that. She spoke she was, her mind um, and paid the prices for it so Mm -hmm. that we could have a better world
0: she's what uh John Lewis calls good trouble you gotta cause some good trouble (laughs) yeah Yeah, Yeah. it's one of my favorite sayings (laughs) Uh,
1: absolutely yeah so what did you learn from her
0: I'm right there with you um I, I did learn a ton from her and I think probably the biggest thing I really am gonna take away from there this is that I learned that white women including myself I am putting myself in there we have to do better We really do. We Um, do. Yeah. I mean, when I was reading about Ida's isolation and the attempts to silence her from history books, it not only broke me, but it showed me yet again how we need to stand together. So, you know, we need to do better. We just really need to. I will also admit in doing this, which is very close to what you were saying, when I do women's history, Ida's name comes up a lot. Uh, it mm-hmm. comes up in the suffragette movement and in the civil rights movement and in, you know, this time period of social justice change quite a bit. So I was actually kind of taken aback about how to label her, uh, how to put her right. in a box. Yeah. And yeah. you know what? You just don't. You just you don't. don't. Uh, you get to be more than one thing, like we were just talking about. Absolutely. Yeah, so... We should all be allowed to be more than one thing. And um, it's one of those things where, like, Ida, she should be known for fighting against lynching. And that could be, like, the baseline. Because we all know about Rosa Parks, right? She's the one that refused Mm -hmm. to give up a seat on a bus. Okay. Well, that's a bench line. That's the one thing we know. We should know more. So we should know one thing about Ida B. Wells, (laughs) which is that she fought anti-lynching laws. And then, you know... Um, add on to that. Um, Plus also um, Ida also didn't give up her seat on a train as well, so I'm just saying. (laughs) Right, I'm just saying. Like... But I really learned that history has done a disservice to Ida B. Wells Barnett, and it is time to hone her spirit and to speak up and to spread her story, because it still matters. um, It still has relevance today. And as we kind of continue on, we're going to start to see the seeds and the foundation of an idea that come to fruition, but again, may or may not give Ida credit for it. So we'll just have to. Right. (laughs) Basically,
1: yeah, we'll do it for you.
0: (laughs) Sweet. Sweet. Well, that... Almost wraps it up for us. Now, normally we leave you with a quote from the gal that we are covering, and we will. Don't worry. Uh, Ida would not like it if we did not end it with her own words. But I also wanted to share this information. I found this written about her in 1909. It, It comes from the Springfield form, and it was written after she was helping remove a sheriff who was condoning and allowing lynching to happen in his town. It says, quote, Ida Wells Barnett is to be highly lauded for her courage and magnanimity. She towers high above all of her male contemporaries and has more of the aggressive qualities than an average man. It belittles the men to some extent to have a woman come forward and do the work that is naturally presumed to be that of men. But Miss Barnett never shrinks nor evades. She is the heroine of her age and the nation is better off for having her lived in it. Long live Mrs. Ida B. Wells Barnett. (laughs)
1: <laughs> oh my gosh, I love that!
0: Isn't that amazing? So I I had to share that one with you, everybody. So next week we are going to be covering the extremely important African American woman who made her mark in the Civil Rights Movement, and it's not Rosa Parks. It's Rosa Parks' mentor, Ella Baker. So until then, here's a quote from Ida B. Wells Barnett quote The way to right wrongs is to turn the light of truth upon them for more information about this week's gal visit galsguide.org to support the show visit the gals guide patreon page thank you so much for subscribing and listening to your gal friday